Hi, this is the Robberator, and you can support my mad grab for power and the Sword and Laser podcast by going to patreon.com slash sword and laser. Hey everyone, welcome to the Sword and Laser. I'm Veronica Belmont. And I'm Tom Merritt. Sword and Laser is a book club, but it's so much more. We bring you author interviews, news from the world of science fiction and fantasy, and of course, awesome discussions from fans just like you. We also teamed up and made an audiobook. Oh, yeah, we did. We talked about it last time. And it's got four and a half stars. That's awesome. Is that for the book itself or is that, no, that's for the audiobook? That's for the audiobook. That's for your <laughs> performance. Someone gave me a very nice compliment today. It made me I happy. Know. Very excited. Uh, folks. I'm not reading any of the reviews, so not if a you single haven't one. Checked it out, go do so. <laughs> it's called Gallium, G-A-L-L-I-U-M. If you go to Tom'sNewbook.com, it takes you to the Kindle page for it where you can get either print or audio, but you're gonna want to get the audio so you can hear Veronica read it. Uh, and uh, apparently other people think it's good. So don't take my word for it. That's right. I had a I had a blast doing it. And luckily at the time I was not sick the way I am now, so my voice didn't sound like this. Performance was great and easy to understand. Top story and a great performance by Veronica. Aww. Those are some actual reviews. For you. Those sound like people who know me. <laughs> Veronica did a fantastic <laughs> job of keeping things dynamic. This is because they're all calling me Veronica leads me to believe that they definitely know me. <laughs> well, they probably know the show, right? <laughs> right. They're not. I don't think it's your mom. I know. I know. One of them's from Sydney, Australia, for goodness sake. That's awesome. I would like to go to there. Um, but yeah, I had a blast doing it. Thanks for letting me. It was fun. Thanks for doing it. Well, uh, what are you drinking tonight? I'm having some fake hot apple cider that's mostly sugar and tastes amazing. Wait, what does that mean? You said that earlier before the show <laughs> that you were drinking delicious chemicals. Yes, it's probably full of chemicals. I don't know. It's it's the stupidest thing I ever did. I'm at the grocery store and we were buying Thanksgiving dinner stuff and I see the box of hot apple cider on an end cap. Anything on an end cap is never good because that's they're putting it true. there. They're putting it there to make you buy it. I guess that's not true. I've seen Dave's killer bread on an end cap, but if you don't recognize it and it's on an end cap, it's because they're trying to push it. Mm-hmm. So I, I bought the packets of hot apple cider and I'm looking at the ingredients. First ingredient is sugar. Like this is mostly <laughs> yeah. just sugar with some kind of fake apple flavoring. It's damn good though. It really tastes good. They did you right. I uh, remember when I bought that horrible mulling spices mix that I yes. tried to put in wine yes. last year. I think it might have been actually cider mix or something. Oh, that's why it didn't work in wine. Then. Which is why it didn't work. Yeah. I see. So that that kind of cleared it up for me. Um, as I mentioned, I am a little under the weather, so I'm mm. drinking water. Uh, unfortunately, nice. I'm trying to. I have a lot of holiday stuff to do this week, like parties. And so hopefully I will get better in time. But <laughs> I like how you would I have a lot of holiday stuff to do this week, like parties, like, par- like fun parties, That's it. pretty much just parties of a lot of parties this week. So I got to get up to up to snuff for the parties. Yeah. yeah, no, that's important. You want to be the life of the party. Yeah, I would just I would just go for being like a, a warm body at the party at yeah. this point. I don't even like, need to be the life, just like barely there. Like the veins returning the blood to the artery that is the life of the party. There you go. There you go. It's catchy. Uh, let's jump into the quick burns. Yes, and we have options, options, options. Actually, some of these aren't options. Some of these are developing. There's a Ooh. difference. An option means... Someone has bought the rights to make a movie or TV show out of a book. 
Mm-hmm. They, they've bought the option. Doesn't mean they will. It means nobody else but them can for the period of that agreement. Development means we're actually hiring directors and putting casting, together production plans yeah. and casting. Also doesn't mean it's going to get made, but it has a much higher chance of getting made if it's being developed right. and just optioned. With well, there could be mind, like, yeah, there could be like a pilot shot or maybe like, yeah, a, you know, yeah. six episodes ordered or something like that where they test it out, see how it tests with audiences, et cetera. So keep the difference in mind because we're going to do a lightning round of options and development announcements because there's so many. Uh, Nokomis FL points out that Hulu is developing two shows, developing two shows uh, based on George R.R. R. Martin's Wild Cards series. Ooh. TRP uh, points out that Theodora Goss is in development on The Strange Case of the Alchemist's Daughter uh, for the CW. Ooh. So that looks like it might come. Uh, on the option side of things, Daradara notes that Autonomous by Annalie Newitz has been optioned by AMC Network. Interesting. That's on my desk. David said uh, Mira Grant, uh, Rolling in the Deep, got optioned to be a film. And Kev Bayer points out that Christine Catherine Rush's Retrieval Artist series has been optioned for TV. Fantastic. That's a lot of great stuff. And yes, as I mentioned, I have Autonomous. I've been meaning to read it for a while. We had Annalie on the show way back when. Um, so I'm excited to to see that, to read that. And I'm a huge fan of The Strange Case of the Alchemist's Daughter and Theodora Goss. So I'm fingers crossed that that does make it all the way to to the CW. That would be great. Yeah. And in development uh, for, for The Strange Case of the Alchemist's Daughter. So good, good chance on that one. Yeah. I would like to see that hit the screen. CW does tend to go teen. So expect like beautiful 20 somethings to be playing the various characters. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, it, it can also go pretty dark. Yeah. Like, no, Riverdale's some, yeah. pretty dark. Riverdale's dark. pretty dark. So is Arrow. Um, so Daradar also says, uh, by the way, George R. R. Martin is apparently sequestered away in a bunker <laughs> to finish the winds of winter. This isn't super newsworthy, she says, but this quote from the AV Club's article is worth sharing for the lulls. It's kind of like he's some sort of villainous supervillain. If said villain's plan was to finally figure out how to... <laughs> okay, this is, a, this is a family show. If said villain's plan was to finally figure out how to F the wrap-up the Brienne Lady Stoneheart cliffhanger from 13 gosh darn years ago. It really is hard, hard to, to make it punch. Was uh, to when finally you- figure out how, How the, the F, F to, wrap to wrap up, up that Brienne yeah. Lady Stoneheart cliffhanger. And it was it was GD, not G darn. G yes. damn. G, it was, wait, wait, it was gosh darn. Gosh darn. Heckin. Heckin had to finally heckin figure out. <laughs> just going to say heckin all the time. It's in doggo Let's bring parlance. back heckin. Yeah. Well, it's your uh, turn. It's your turn. Tell now. us what your, your heckin favorite George R. R. Martin <laughs> book is on Goodreads. Uh, Rob pointed out that World Builders 2018 kicked off Tuesday. It runs through December 11th. Uh, it's a shorter run than normal. Uh, so get in there and make your auctions. Uh, Patrick Rothfuss's blog post has more details. The auction ends a little earlier too, uh, de- December 6th. But World Builders is always about raising money for charity. Yes, there's so many good things in here. There's lots of great anthologies. There's art. There's jewelry. So many good things. Uh, so definitely check it out. We'll put a link to it directly in the show notes. All right. And then John Taloni says the mortal world, uh, sorry, the mortal word. Man, Mm. I took a lot of cold medicine. The mortal (laughs) word. Fifth book in the Invisible Library series is out. Squee! Uh, Fifth? 
I can't believe I we're already on book five of the Invisible Library series. That's crazy. Uh, this is, of course, the series by Genevieve Cogman. Um, I read the first one. I haven't been keeping up. Actually, I think I started the second one. I had no idea they were at five. How did they get to five so fast? How did they Slow get to five down, so fast? World. I know, but it's uh, it's, but it's good, good on series. you, Genevieve Cogman. Man, that's awesome. Totally, and beautiful, uh, beautiful covers for those books too. If you have them in, in hardcover or paperback, so check them out if you haven't already. Thank you, John. Uh, and William points out some pretty exciting news, I, I think. Uh, Margaret Atwood announced a sequel to The Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> yeah, it's exciting. You're kidding 20, me? 20, 30 years later. Uh, it's called The Testaments. It will be set 15 years after Offred's final scene in The Handmaid's Tale and narrated by three female characters. It will not be connected to the television version because that has already moved past the end of the 1985 oh, novel. Yeah. Uh, so, so we're getting sort of a Game of Thrones situation here, right? Mm-hmm. Where the Offred's tale is being told outside of the book, but another book's coming, and it may not match up with the TV show. Um, it's funny, uh, Margaret Atwood is is talking about consulting with the professor on details. Uh, because the professor is the purported character telling you the story of the Handmaid's Tale when the professor is looking over items of history that tell the tale of what happened in Gilead back when Gilead was a thing. Well, I got to know now, is this like, is this kind of like an author reading their own fanfic? Like, is she going to have seen the show and Mm. know what's going on in the future of the show? And will that impact the world that she's writing for the second book? I I can't imagine it wouldn't whether she lets it impact it a lot or not is mm-hmm. is the question right It'll like just be sitting back there in her mind yeah yeah I, I could I could see a perfectly legitimate situation where she's looking at what they're doing in the TV show and going you know I see why they're doing that for TV but if I were to write this I'd do this and maybe after a few of those occurrences she decides you know what I think I have a good idea I'm gonna write the <laughs> yeah. testaments. Or, yeah, and it could just be, com- like like they said, we don't know much about the storyline yet. It could be completely different characters in a different place, just 15 years in the future. Yeah. Not yeah, relating yeah. necessarily to what's happening in the show, but in the same universe, obviously. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So a lot of ways that she could handle that. She's a, uh, what they call a capable writer. So I think she'll have she a, sure a no problem figuring it out. Dara Dara gives me some new information that I'm very mm. excited about. I thought you might be. She says... Joe Abercrombie is returning to the first law world with a new trilogy via Orbit Books. Yay! Thank you, Joe. A little hatred marks Abercrombie's much-anticipated return to the world of the first law. The novel features exciting new characters, along with the return of some memorable faces for longtime Abercrombie fans. Written and told in a way that only Abercrombie can, the new trilogy is a visceral story of bloody revolution. Dara Dara says, sounds interesting. I didn't love the first law books, ah. but I like Joe's style, so I will likely check it out. Wait, so when how she do you- says she likes Joe's style, does she mean his suits or his does, writing He does style? wear a good suit. Not that I know. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I'm just looking at the Orbit books yeah. posting here, and he's got, a, he's got a fine suit on. Oh, is he? I didn't look, go to the posting. Is he wearing that suit? He's wearing a good suit. You know, the suit from, from his photos? It's yep, a photo of him one. in a suit. That's yeah. the one. Yeah. He's had that photo for a while. September 2019. I <gasps> will be there. Because say what you will about Joe Abercrombie. <laughs> say he writes a really good first law story. <laughs> nice. Nice. Very exciting stuff coming up. All right. Well, now it is time for Barrier Sword, which is our feedback from the audience. 
Now, we had a great thread uh, that was started over here over on Goodreads about blurbs. And I thought it was pretty interesting because, Tom, have you been asked to to blurb things before? I have on uh, more than one occasion. And how have you found that experience? Uh, Nerve wracking, (laughs) for one (laughs) thing, because, you know, when you're asked to, to write a blurb, first of all, if you say no, that's hard and most people understand like oh you're busy whatever but it does feel like you're a little saying like oh yeah i can't say anything good about your book so i don't want to i don't want to write it uh so thankfully i i am not the kind of person who's been overwhelmed i think i've said yes every time i've been asked but it means you have to write it you have to read it you know sometimes like, yeah well you should <laughs> right? all right so dara's post sorry dara dara's post wow i picked a side there for a second yeah, i noticed that wow really coming down on she says, uh, Marie Myung O.K. Lee over at The Millions, uh, sorry if I mispronounced that, argues that we need to destroy the blurbing industrial complex. She says that blurbing takes away from time that authors could be using to write their own stories and that most people don't even know what a blurb is. Lee asked random people for this piece and they aren't quoted. 24% of Americans don't read books, so it's not exactly surprising that random people are unfamiliar with blurbs. So, do blurbs even matter? If an author you like blurbs a book, are you more likely to buy it? Do you read blurbs at all when you browse books? And any authors here, do blurb requests take up as much time as Lee claims? I'm genuinely curious if your experiences are similar to hers. Well, I, I'll, I'll, pro- I'll go out on a limb on behalf of authors and say, yeah, they, they take up a lot of time. Um, especially ma- managing requests. If you don't have a manager or something, you know, maybe you're not John Scalzi. And <laughs> right. I don't, I don't even know if Scalzi has a manager for that. On it. He might handle them all himself too, but it, it takes up a lot of time. So I am always skeptical of the, that's time they could spend writing because I don't think things usually work that way. It's not a zero sum game where like, oh, because I blurbed, I wrote less on my book today. It yeah. probably comes out of other time uh, that you could be spending. But at the same time, I'm I'm sort of, on board with, I don't think blurbs are as important, especially for established authors. I think they are shortcuts for people who are like, huh, this is an author I've never heard of. Who blurbed it? Oh, George R. Yeah. R. Martin blurbed it. Well, I'll probably like it then. And they probably don't even read what he wrote. They just look and see like, oh, that person blurbed it. That's me. I, I definitely, I will look on the back of a book and I will look to see who has blurbed it. So I guess it does matter in that sense. I haven't asked to blurb things before. I've done it before. In a couple situations, I wasn't able to read the entire book, but I feel like I read you're looking for the book right now that I blurbed for you. I did not finish that book. And I know for a fact that yours is one of them. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I did read Gallium. Read the whole you thing. You sure did. I made sure you. did. <laughs> and I didn't ask you um, to blurb it. That's true. That's a good point. That would have been weird. And somehow, like, yeah. I don't know. I'd have to, like, recuse myself from blurbing that book. Um but yeah, it's, it's, it is hard because reading a book and reading it well is can take some time. Not if you're Jenny from Reading Envy, but yeah. most normal humans. <laughs> take, <laughs> Jenny has superpowers. That's yes, different. Take a good long time to finish a book. Um, and especially when you're already doing a book club show like we do, where we have to read at least one book a month. Um, it can, it can you know, dig into some of that time. But yeah, I, I was surprised because recently I was uh, looking at books at Borderlands and I grabbed something. I'm like, oh, I don't know this author. I don't know this book. And I turned it over and it had blurbs from like Fran Wilde and some other authors that I really mm. liked. And I was like, oh, okay. They're part of that crew. Yeah. Like I feel like there's a, 
a crew of, of authors who I all really admire and they all kind of like help each other out and blurb each other's books. And I'm like, okay, that probably means I'm going to like this style at the very least. It's a weeding down factor to say like, well, hold on. It sounds like it might be interesting. Who? Oh, Fran Wilde. Okay. I liked her stuff if she likes it, but that's the thing. I I think a lot of times we just look for the names. We don't even look for what they said. The blurb might say, it's an okay book. If you like that sort of thing, Fran (laughs) Wilde. It probably still work. <laughs> right. So, yeah, it's, it's a funny thing. I think most people in this thread are saying that they're ignorable. Uh, ben said they were ignorable. Lisa says that she doesn't, in general, read blurbs and they don't affect the purchases. Um, so I guess it just kind of depends. But I, I think they actually affect me, at least in the bookstore, Yeah, more than I probably realize. I think they do. I, they're not reviews. You're not mm-hmm. going to decide whether a book is good or not from a blurb, I don't think. Uh, and they probably don't help as much online, although I will see blurbs on Amazon. On Amazon, I do look. You know, I look there and, as well. And they probably mm-hmm. help there. Uh, but in the, in the browsing scenario, when you're unfamiliar with something and just looking to try, I think they are a shortcut that is taken into account. Yeah. So interesting discussion. I think that was a, a thing I I don't often think about, but that definitely does have an impact. Do you want to read the tweet? I love these. I love these Twitter book reviews. Uh, keep them coming. Thank you. This one's from Beth. Jade City by Fonda Lee. This sword and laser pick was too gritty for me. The rich characterization made it hard to keep going. There are no good endings when two mafias fight, and the best luck went to the least deserving. Good book for the bravehearted. Me, I'm shallow. Beth is the only one who does these book reviews. <laughs> so she's awesome. Uh, I wish more people did them because they're great. And I love how bite-sized really they are. She's really good at it, too. And she's like, really fun. I feel like I read a two-page book review just now. Yeah. And that was like, that's a good blurb, too. Like some It is. People, that's a pretty I good... I mean, it's not a blurb they'd use on marketing materials. Probably not for Jade City. Um, <laughs> um, but, yeah. We've had some other ones in the past. She packs in on so much meaning. And how does she do that? I kind of want to do these, too, but I don't want to also steal her thunder. But maybe we should start doing Beth, them let when us we know. Up. Is it okay if we get other people to do these? Because I think it would be fun. I think it would be fun, too. But thank you for, for doing them and keeping them going. All right, let's uh, jump into the book club discussion. Uh, we're going to kick off uh, the, our next book for December in the next episode. Which um, is only a week away, not the normal Which is only a weeks. week away, right. Um, so that's going to be Ka, Dar Oakley, and the Ruin of Ymir. 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 I'm actually listening to the audiobook already, and I can't remember now. I think it's uh, Oh, Ymir. really? Ymir? Yeah. yeah, something like that. Uh, by John Crowley. Uh, also author of Little Big or Big Little. No, I can't remember. I think it's Little Big. Um, and it's uh, I started reading already. It's a lot of fun. It's very different from most things we read. And I didn't realize how many people in the forums were excited to read it. So I feel good about my choice. That was not at all motivated by the fact that it was sitting on my desk. It's got a lot of buzz, a lot of literary acc- acclaim, mm-hmm. uh, as does John Crowley in general, uh, and deservedly so. Uh, so far, with the little bit that I've read, I can say it probably deserves it, although I haven't finished it. But ah! yeah, there, there's there's a lot of times there's literary buzz around stuff and then you read it and you're like, yeah, I see yeah. why I got the buzz, but maybe I don't like it so much. Not for me. This one doesn't feel like that to me. This feels like, OK, this is there's some cool stuff going on here. Absolutely. So we'll kick that off next week. Um, but we are going to get now into our spoilery, mega spoilery discussion of Zeros by Chuck Wendig. Mm-hmm. So if you haven't finished it, if you don't want to hear the spoils, now would be the time. It's going to be so spoilery. 
Well, basically, we're just going to talk about the Wendig book. Wendig will get spoiled listening to this conversation, and he <laughs> wrote the book. That's weird. Um, do you want to do like <laughs> first impressions first or last impressions and yeah, then go yeah. into the forum threads? Uh, for sure. I really enjoyed it. And I I picked it because I wanted to pick something by Chuck. I wanted to pick something different by Chuck. Uh, and I like this sort of burgeoning genre, this cyberpunkish, you know, modern day hackers doing stuff. Uh, I'll be honest. I was ready to forgive things mm-hmm. and I didn't have to. Uh, he did a great job of researching. He picked way too many characters to handle, but I think he handled them well. And I love that he picked so many characters because it showed that hacker doesn't mean a guy in a hoodie sitting at a terminal, uh, writing scripts. It can mean so many different things. And in fact, it can mean positive things, not just negative things. And even though everyone that is a hacker in the zeros crew, did something bad, they oftentimes were hacking for good reasons, right? Like hacking to help further the cause of freedom or, or hacking to, in, in, at least in his mind, you know, punish something, someone for a horrible uh, crime that they committed. So it wasn't all like, I'm greedy and I'm going to screw stuff up and steal money. Uh, and well, even though there, yeah. was, there were one or two that were like that too. Mm-hmm. And we even got a great troll, right? Like she is the epitome of a troll, which is like, I don't really care about any of it. I it's, I don't do it for a reason. I just do it because y'all are hypocrites and I stupid for the and you deserve it. Yeah, yeah. Do it for the lulls. Exactly. Yes. I, I felt like I wanted more out of all the characters. I, I was ready to like dive into their individual stories even more, especially like DeAndre yeah. and, and uh, his, I think I liked his character the best personally, yeah. but I I felt like he became very understated later in the book. Like I loved his initial story and kind of like his parkour, like like extravaganza, like fleeing from from the NSA or the police or whoever were after him at his at his at the house he had just bought for his mom. Uh-huh. I could picture it perfectly. Um, and then I kind of feel like he more than any other character kind of went into the background. We got like, a really rich description of him we 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 got such a great painting of his picture and his relationship with his mom that i think you're right i think you wanted just as much richness out of him all the way through which i realized is probably impossible when you do have that huge cast of characters um but i felt like other characters were a little more developed later in the book which you know there were some main characters like chance and elisa chance sorry yeah Yeah, we're both very very developed uh reagan regan uh she was you know we got to see some depth out of her especially later in the story um and wade who i thought was also a really wonderful character maybe that's the problem with deandra is is that he he was too deep too early so yeah he maybe he didn't have as far to go with him whereas wade you know and reagan both uh you thought they were shallow characters and you understood them and and they turned out to have hidden depths and chance to me also felt like a little bit of a mary sue <laughs> In a lot of ways, yeah, um, I know I we always go back to that trope, but he like he was like, Marty I'm not a hacker. Stew. I'm I'm not good at Marty Stew. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not a good hacker. I'm not good at this. Yes, he was very good at social engineering, but he just he he got out of situations so many times that he had no right getting out of. I don't know if I I, I don't know if I would condemn it so much as a as a Marty Stew myself. Uh, I do do know that he he is us 
the the person who doesn't understand hacking, unless of course you do, which is fine. Uh, but most readers are not going to understand it, and he is their window. All of them get out of situations for the most part that they shouldn't have, but Chance is the one at the end who gets everyone out of the situation, right? Like he is, yeah. he's he's the the Uber key to unlocking all the mysteries. He kind of felt to me a little bit like um, Wade in Ready Player One mm. in some ways. Like, I guess Wade was a little more capable, but he had like a supporting team of people around him who what were I even liked more about capable. Chance, though, Chance is very capable. He just doesn't really value what he's capable of. And I, I think that's so many of us. Where You see, you just see the good in people. That's what I like about you, Tom. <laughs> no, but Ch- Chance thinks he's a he shouldn't be there because he's a bad hacker. But the reason he was picked is because he's brilliant at social engineering. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't feel like, well, anybody can do that. And it, and the fact is, no, not everybody can. He actually did have a talent. A lot of people. We should get into. I guess we should get into the forum threads. Um, yeah, let's but do. But there's there's so much to this book. Let's see. The first one. Boop 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 from boo. Kurt. I'm just clicking around here, man. I just lost all my links, so I'm just... Oh, uh, uh, well, let me give you Kurt's. Kill, I'm just killing some time while I pull these puppies up. Kurt wrote present tense. Uh, he said, in reading books about writing, I've come across more than once the advice that default perspective should pretty much always be past tense, third person, limited omniscient. And the only time you should break out of this is if you have a good reason to tell your story in another way. For example, it's told in the format of a diary. This is because it's what the audience is used to and therefore will create the best flow for your story. So now whenever I read a story that doesn't fit these parameters, it seems I always have this thing floating around in the back of my head about whether or not the author is justified in not following the rules. Really, it's the main reason why I thought the Hunger Games were atrocious. Ultimately, I guess I have twofold question. First, did anybody else find Wendig's use of present tense disorienting, or is that just my own pet peeve? And as an aside... Is this something that he normally does? This is the first book of his that I've read. And second, does anybody feel like there was a valid literary reason for using present tense? So, uh, yes, this is typically how Chuck writes, I believe. Um, other people in the in the forum thread noticed uh, or noted rather that uh, like like Philip, that he did this for mm-hmm. the Star Wars novels as well. Honestly, I didn't even notice. I never notice if someone does it right from the get go. It's only when it changes. Like, I think it changed in Mortal Engines in the middle of the story at one point. I think um, the sh- I think Shrike speaks in present tense. Or there was some book where one character spoke in present tense, and that was very disorienting, as he said. Um, but in this book, because it was written that way throughout, I didn't notice. It just yeah. felt fine. Uh, they, they talk a lot in this thread here about Jonathan Franzen putting out rules for writing and Chuck hmm. being among the people who roasted him about it. Uh, I, th- I think that, you know, we could, we could have a whole episode just talking about w- whether there are rules for writing and what they should be. I will say if you put a rule in your head and decide that's the rule, then anything that doesn't follow that rule is going to feel wrong. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that the rule is wrong. I'm just saying your feeling that it wasn't right could be because it's not a good idea, or it could be that you've just biased yourself by putting that rule in your head, and it's not going to be easy for you to tell because you don't have a control group <laughs> of you right. not believing that rule. <laughs> True. Like the Oxford comma. <laughs> yeah. The Oxford comma bugged me forever because I was raised in AP style. That's what they teach in journalism school, and there's no Oxford comma. I have no good reason to hate the Oxford comma. There are very good reasons to use an Oxford comma, but I had that bias for a long time because 
that's what I was told was the rule. See, and I'm the opposite. Mm-hmm. I learned in the Oxford comma or somehow picked it up along the way. And so when I don't see it used, I get very annoyed. Thank goodness for Vampire Weekend. It freed us all from giving an F about the Oxford comma. <laughs> I just like that song because they talk about horchata. Yeah. It's just my I've favorite. i those English dramas too. All right. And then uh, Jenny from Reading Envy says, I used to listen to the Writing Excuses podcast a lot. And one guy in there talked frequently about the seven point story structure. Because this book feels more like a movie being described to me, and because I'm listening to the audio, I really noticed part seven coming up and containing all the final blowout, which would probably be exciting in a theater. She says, I think the structure is borrowed from film scripts. As far as I remember their discussion on the podcast, bear with me, this makes sense in my head. Do you think this is Chuck's thinly veiled underlying structure? And you, Tom, <laughs> had some comments on this. I know. But I just, I don't know what the idea around seven point structure is, story structure. So I was hoping you could kind of fill in and, and dig into that a little bit more. Okay. Well, first of all, since you mentioned it, I responded to Jenny saying like, you know, does it matter? I didn't bring matter? that up, Tom. You don't have to defend you, yourself. No, you I did didn't bring, bring it up. up. You, no, you I'm said saying, I commented. You went, no, I said you were in the thread talking about the seven point story structure. So would you please enlighten me? Mm, that's not what, you know, you said you that's made a comment about it and you could hear your eyebrows raising. No, it wasn't. <laughs> anyway, the seven point Who story structure. Me? The seven Jeez. point story structure is just a hook, which any good opening of a book should have a hook, right? Uh, a plot turn, a, a, what's called a pinch, uh, then the midpoint, then another pinch, then a plot turn, and then the resolution. Hmm. Okay. Got it. So I didn't know that, so I wasn't looking for it. Yeah, uh, I wasn't looking for it either. I think Jenny's probably right. He was probably doing that. There's definitely a trend these days to encourage authors to write their book so they will be saleable to television mm-hmm. and film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he may have been doing that on very much on purpose uh, to say like, hey, here's your seven beats. Film people, one option, zeros, <laughs> go for it. And then this um, really smart guy in the thread says, well, there are well-known structures that make a story work. That's just human nature. We like stories that fit a certain way. If they're too similar, we don't like it. But if it's too experimental, we don't like it. Uh, Kurt said, yes, exactly the words he was trying to find. So Tom. we'll attribute that to Kurt. <laughs> no, but it's true. I mean, that's exactly actually what I was thinking as you were explaining this. I'm like, oh, this sounds like just a good way to tell a story. Yeah. And and if we read a story or see a film or, or, or anything and we're like, that's just exactly X, we don't like it. We're like, mm-hmm. it's too derivative, right? We, de- we deride it as derivative, unoriginal, et cetera. If we see a story, though... That's too far from the structure. We're like, that didn't make any sense. It went all over the place. You know, it did, it mm-hmm. wasn't a good story. So it needs to walk that line where it's following a structure that we as humans just generally like, but isn't too similar or familiarity breeds contempt. I see. All right. And then finally, um, Sheila Jean says uh, the ending. So I admit I raced through this, but is it just me or did everything end in a hurry? Mm. So we've got the team at the backup site overcoming the, quote, zombie people to greater and lesser degrees. And we have the team and the primary sites coming to join their loved ones. And we have the non-hacker kid fighting our prima donna hacker dude from the lodge in zombie form, of course. And, oh, wait, we can just overheat this place and bam, it's over. What am I missing? 
As for the back and forth bit with the kidnapping on the train, I really liked those scenes. Finding out that the whole thing on the train was the required payment for making New York City go dark was also pretty neat. On the other hand, the Zeros keeping a copy of the science fiction experiment, sorry, science experiment gone wrong just had me rolling my eyes. I don't think it was rushed, although other people did. That's fine. Uh, I did think... Not that it was too simplistic of an ending. It's it's actually quite genius. Like, oh, right. Computers have to run at a particular temperature. If we can get them to overheat, that'll, you know, they're, they're not invulnerable. I feel like this smart of an AI would have thought more about that mm. ahead of time. That's mm. all. That was mm-hmm. my only objection there is like, okay, I'm going to have to suspend a little disbelief that this was not anticipated. Right. Or the fact that they, you know, I guess she wanted them to get in there. Yeah. So that was expected. And she was, uh, you know, three steps ahead of him everywhere the whole way. Right. I'm that's having a hard time. That's the problem with having a character that's three steps ahead of you the whole way, though, is if you ever beat them, it always feels like a little bit like a cheat. Like, well, if she was three steps ahead on those, why wasn't she three steps ahead on that one? I agreed with some other commenters that I was very confused why Chance had to get the snot beaten out of him on the train. Like with the widow. Like, why was the widow just kind of hanging out there watching him get the poop kicked out of him? Just because? Uh, she didn't care. That's what she I took care. out of it. It's like she was she she wanted her payback, right? Mm-hmm. They she was the one that helped them defeat the AI, and in exchange she got this. And what does she care if he gets the snot beat out of him? What did she get again? I don't, I don't remember. remember. <laughs> what did she get? Did she, she get got him to come along and do something on the train? That's what she got. But I don't remember what it was. Now I thought Darn. he just got kidnapped on the train, like and brought to the train. And then no, she was stealing something from the train. I, I even tried, maybe I even tried to like look in my Kindle to figure it out, like before this episode, and I could not figure it out. So someone, someone on Twitter or in the forums, remind me because I cannot remember what what the widow got out of Chance being on the train and him getting the poop beat out of him. I mean, we'll you figure could just it out. Go back and reread it. I tried to. I couldn't figure out how far I had to go back. Ah, uh, because like, it was I, on a Kindle. Yeah. Like I got to them like escaping the train, but like I, I couldn't figure out where I would learn what she was getting out of it. Anyway, um, I was I also searching thought it was for a plot summary. The fourth result in searching for Zero's Wikipedia Wendig is the sword and laser wiki. Oh, amazing. Um, <laughs> Not a lot of plot summaries about this. Yeah, there was no Wikipedia article on this book, I noticed, because mm. I looked for it as well. Um, so someone out there will know, but I was also really annoyed that they kept a copy of a backup of the AI, like captured. Like that seems like a bad idea. No, no, come on. You've got to do that. In fact, that's the best way to defend against another instance is to keep a copy. True. Like a sandbox version. How are you going to have a sequel if you don't have a copy of her waiting to bust out? (laughs) Find another AI. (laughs) Rebuild it. Yeah, but you're right. If they have a little sandbox version that they can play mm. around in. It's like keeping anthrax, right? Why do we have anthrax? Well, we have anthrax because we need to be able to study it in order to defend against anthrax. Or um, deadly noodles. Got to keep those those uh, deadly noodles around. So when you get bit by a deadly noodle, mm-hmm. you have the... Um, yep. No probes. Although if you got bit by a deadly noodle, chances are there are still deadly noodles around. That's right. Yeah. Might be hard to catch, though. It's true. All right. Well, that is the end of our podcast on that note. <laughs> Deadly but noodle. Yeah. What should we call this episode, Tom? I don't Deadly know. Deadly noodle. Deadly noodles. Yeah. 
murder, 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 murder by pasta. <laughs> well, it's no probes, snacks, long boys, <laughs> you know, now you're just saying words. No, I'm na- These are all these names for snakes. No probe. You never heard of no probe. <laughs> I actually haven't heard of no probe. Okay. Well, we can call it no probe. Nope. Rope. I was hearing no probe. No probe. Nope. Rope makes sense to me then. Okay. Yeah. I haven't heard it, but that's good. Yeah. That's it. Okay, cool. Well, our show is currently entirely funded by our patrons. Thank you to all the folks who back us. If you want to help support us, you can head over to patreon.com slash sword and laser. You can also support the show by buying books through our links. You can find links to the books we talk about and some of our favorite books at swordandlaser.com slash picks. Send us an email at feedback at swordandlaser.com. Our website is swordandlaser.com. All of our discussions happen over on goodreads.com slash swordandlaser. And you can call and leave us a voicemail at 4157sword6. We will see you next time. Bye. Goodbye. Frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there.